Well, we appreciate your attendance here this morning, as has already been expressed. I know we have some visitors here with us today. We're glad that you're here with us, and I hope for all of us members and visitors alike, the time we spend here together is is uplifting, strengthening, and edifying for us this morning as we worship God together and encourage one another. Just one little housekeeping note, it was already announced, but uh, do remember we have our door knocking campaign coming up uh, October the 5th, so that's a Saturday just two weeks from now, two weeks from yesterday, and we are going to have a brief meeting after services, nothing too involved at this point, we just kind of want to get a tentative idea of how many people are planning to participate, so we can get it organized on how many people we've got and where we're going to be able to go. So I encourage you to just stick around for a few minutes after services this morning. Just come down front and meet here and uh, we'll get a a brief idea of how we can plan this here in a couple of weeks. How many of you are familiar with the story of Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Children's book, yeah, I see some hands up. A lot of us are familiar with that probably. Alexander's a young boy, and he has this one day when just absolutely everything imaginable goes wrong. He wakes up in the morning, and the gum that he'd fallen asleep with in his mouth last night is in his hair. He gets out of bed, and he trips on the skateboard. He drops his sweater in the sink while the water's running. At breakfast, Alexander's brothers, Anthony and Nick, they reach into their cereal boxes and they pull out these amazing prizes. Alexander reaches into his cereal box and he pulls out cereal. He doesn't get anything. On the way to school, in the carpool, Alexander doesn't get a window seat. He's smushed there in the middle. And he complains about it, but he's so scrunched up that no one can hear him. And when he gets to school, his teacher, Mrs. Dickens, doesn't like his picture of an invisible castle, which, to be fair, was just a blank piece of paper. She criticizes his singing. She tells him that he left out the number 16 when he counts. His friend, Paul, who he thought was his best friend, tells him that he's only his third best friend. And at lunch, everybody else has a dessert, but when he looks in his lunch stack, for whatever reason, his mother forgot his that morning. After school, he goes to the dentist, and he finds out he has a cavity. The elevator door closes on his foot. Anthony pushes him in the mud, Nick says he's a crybaby, and when he tries to punch Nick for calling him a crybaby, his mother sees it and punishes him for punching his brother. They go to the shoe store to buy shoes for all the kids. They're out of the shoes that Alexander wants, blue ones with red stripes. So his mother forces him to get plain white tennis shoes, which he absolutely refuses to wear. And then they go to pick up dad from work, and Alexander unwittingly gets into everything. He plays with the copy machine. He knocks all of dad's books off the desk. He plays with the phone and accidentally makes a long-distance call to the point that dad says, don't ever come and pick him up from work anymore. (laughs) 
At home, the family has lima beans for supper, and he hates lima beans. There's kissing on TV. He hates kissing. Bath time is a nightmare. The water is too hot. He gets soap in his eyes. He loses a marble down the drain. He has to wear his railroad train pajamas. He hates his railroad train pajamas. And then when he goes to bed, the nightlight burns out. He bites his tongue. Nick takes away a pillow that he'd given him. And the family cat decides to sleep with Anthony instead of him. It's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And it's no wonder that throughout that day he says over and over again that he'd like to just move to Australia. Have you ever felt that way? You ever have days like that? I think we all do, don't we? Maybe we've all wished that we could move somewhere else, not to Australia. There's too many poisonous snakes there, but, but somewhere far away from here. We have all of our anxiety, our stresses, our frayed nerves, and we don't know how to handle that. And of course, as Alexander's mother reminds him at the end of the book, everyone has those days. Even in Australia, you can't get away from them. Scripture doesn't offer us a formula for instant spiritual maturity. A lot of people are searching for one. We'd like there to be some sort of experience we could have some sort of prayer that we could say, some sort of uh, verse that we could read and just instantly, ah, that's it, that's the answer, I've got it, I've arrived. But it doesn't come that way. Spiritual growth, spiritual maturity only comes through stress, through strain, through struggle, through being torn down and then built back up just the same way that we grow and develop any physical muscle in our bodies. In 1967, two psychiatrists, Thomas Holmes, Richard Rahe, developed a scale to try to measure the effects of stress on the human body. And they came up with a list of 43 events that we might experience. And they assigned each one of these a value in what they termed life change units or LCUs. And the more of these you accumulated, the more problems that you had. For instance, a getting a divorce in a year was rated at 73 LCUs. Being pregnant was rated at 40 LCUs. Even things like having some sort of personal achievement, that was 28. The stress of Christmas was rated at 12, and everybody has to deal with that every year. You see, we're constantly being bombarded by these life-changing units. And the whole point of their findings was that if any calendar year you experience 300 or more of those events, you have a greater likelihood, 80% or more, of becoming seriously ill. Humanly speaking, we just can't handle all of that stress, all of that change. Humanly speaking. And I emphasize humanly because our trust in God can make all of the difference in how we're able to handle the things that happen to us in life. 
And with that in mind, we want to look together at the 46th Psalm this morning. A lot of the Psalms have superscriptions at the top. You're familiar with these. They'll give us a little bit of historical background. They're not inspired, but they're very ancient. And so we can know what historical circumstances occasioned that psalm. That helps us to interpret it. We don't have anything like this with this one. But if you read through the psalm, its tone definitely indicates at least that the writer was experiencing some sort of great crisis. There was trouble. The psalmist felt like he was in a pressure cooker. And so he wrote this psalm to try to deal with some of those stresses of life. Listen to that first verse that was read a few moments ago. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That Hebrew word translated trouble here literally means that something is tight, it's narrow, it's pressing in upon us, it's constricting. We all know that old expression, between a rock and a hard place. That's what we're talking about here. The psalmist was between a rock and a hard place. And so when we're in that sort of trouble, when we're between the rock and the hard place, we can turn to this psalm. It speaks to us in a profound way. In fact, Martin Luther was meditating on this psalm when he was in that sort of pressure cooker between the rock and the hard place, surrounded by enemies, and it inspired him to write the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He read this and he saw God's tremendous power, that bulwark never failing. See, regardless of what happens in the world around us, regardless of what's going on in our lives, we still have the strength and the power and the might of God. Let's consider just a brief overview of this psalm, and then we'll look at it in more detail, but we can divide it up into three sections. Verses 1 through 3 deal with changes in nature. And in the midst of those, the psalmist says, I will not fear. God is my refuge. God is my strength. Even though all of this chaos is taking place in the created world around me, God is still in control. Verses 4 through 7 then, uh, the imagery is of a city under siege and of all sorts of changes taking place in society. And the psalmist says, I will not be moved. Even though nations are pulling themselves apart, even though the world around us is disintegrating, God is my refuge, God's my strength, I will not be moved. Then in verses 8 through 11, he sort of steps back and looks forward, and he sees how God is, in fact, in control of everything. And he essentially says, I'm not going to let any sort of anxiety control my life. I'll trust in the Lord, knowing that he's the one who's in control of everything. So let's look then, first of all, at verses 1 through 3. We read verse 1 already. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. That's an extremely powerful image. Think about 
the earth and the mountains. These are things that are solid, immovable, seemingly indestructible. And yet in the midst of this, here they are being shattered by these, this powerful agent of chaos, the roiling sea. This is a picture here of nature in complete upheaval. It's almost like the whole created order is being overturned. Now that sounds like the writer could have been familiar with our headlines in our part of the world, doesn't it? Here in this general area, Different places experienced about three and a half feet of rain, give or take, all in the space of about 24 hours. And that produced a thousand year flood event. That is an event that statistically speaking should only occur approximately once every millennium. And yet it's the second thousand year flooding event in the space of two years. We all know that a lot of people who quite literally had just recently finished their rebuilding, their renovating from Hurricane Harvey, moved back, got settled into their house, lost it all again. And if you want to back it off to what they call 500-year floods, those that should only occur every 500 years, this is five of those, either 500 or 1,000, in the last five years. And those of you who have been longtime residents of this area know far better than I do the sort of devastation that these flood events bring. And that's just in our little corner of the world that we've seen this sort of natural chaos. I came here from Spicewood in the hill country, and not too many years ago, we experienced a drought in that region that was the worst drought that that part of the world had seen in over half a century. The Perdinalis River, just a little way down from my house, normally full of water, if you had riverfront property, you could go out and mow the river. There was no stream, no trickle, no nothing, just high grass growing there. And I'm not talking for weeks or months, but for years, literally. And when it was so dry, we had wildfires that raged through there in the hill country, west of Austin, in Bastrop, just east of Austin. In fact, this was before Abby and I got married, but one of those fires started less than a mile from where I lived by the church building. And if the prevailing winds had not blown it south, if they'd blown it north, well, then I would have been caught in one of those fires. Further afield, just in the last decade, we've seen massive earthquakes, we've seen tsunamis. A geologist point to the San Andreas Fault in California and tell us that one of these days, a little chunk of California is going to break off into the Pacific Ocean. We have tornadoes that sweep through our land. We have blizzards that paralyze our cities. You look at all that, and it can be frightening can be terrifying even the things we've seen around here we wonder what's going on and we wonder how to handle that as Christians how should we react to all of this the psalmist says I will not be afraid actually he says we will not fear now that's an important reminder that 
as individualistic as we are and as much as we talk about having a personal relationship with the Lord, and that's true. We don't serve God in isolation. God puts us into a people. We're part of a community, and we will not fear because God is still in command of the wind and the waves and the sea and all of the elements. He is our refuge, the place of shelter we can turn to in the storm. He is our strength, that is, that internal empowering force that enables us to endure. He is a very present help in trouble. That means we can find him. God is here, and God is sufficient. Now look at verses 4 through 7. He says, first of all, in contrast to that uh, chaos in the sea, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is is our fortress. Here he pictures nations in an uproar, kingdoms falling, great societal changes taking place. That could be describing our world too, couldn't it? Not even two weeks ago, we commemorated the anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. Here we are, two decades, two trillion dollars countless lives later and the war that began in response to those is still going on no end in sight we're fighting ISIS we've recently stepped up our efforts against them in fact in Syria and in Libya and even if we somehow defeat them experience teaches us that some new enemy maybe even worse will just take their place After all, we're in this cycle where many of the people we're fighting against in the Middle East were formerly our allies, fighting against people who were our enemies, who were formerly our allies, and so on and so on and so forth as the unintended consequences of our actions continue to manifest themselves. And it seems that every week almost brings some new threat of a war in some part of the world. And then there's the turmoil that we experience here at home. Whatever side of the political divide you fall upon, one thing we can all agree on is our present politics is in a state of chaos. Things are a big mess. And that doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. And then there's the social upheaval, the cultural upheaval. It it seems that things in our society are changing faster and faster. As the old proverb goes, we, we live in interesting times, for sure. So the psalmist says, nations rage, kingdoms are tearing themselves apart. Sometimes the world itself seems to be on the brink of disaster. But whatever's going on as Christians, we don't have to despair in the midst of all that. 
we can stand steadfast, just like that city of Zion where he says there that she shall not be moved. We can say we will not be moved because a mightier king of a mightier nation is on our side. Jesus is still king of kings and lord of lords. It reminds me of the prayer of the disciples in Acts chapter 4. This is after they faced persecution for the first time. The Sanhedrin is warned, Peter and John, not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And after they're released, they go back, they find their friends. And it says that when they heard that warning, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predetermined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They had confidence that even while the nations were raging, that God was still in control. He was directing whatever took place. We can and should still have that same confidence. That same God is still in control. Jesus is still Lord. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that, we should be able to say, I shall not be moved. Then to return to the 46th Psalm, it seems like the writer takes a step back and he takes a longer view of things. He reflects on them. Verse number 8, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. That word behold generally indicates that we're going to look at something with the inner eye. We're seeing like a prophet or like a, a seer. We're, we're walking by faith and not by sight, human sight here. And what we have here is a vision of what's going to come. The ultimate victory of which all of these present victories over the natural world, over the nations, these are just a foretaste of it. The ultimate victory is going to be won by God. It's assured. He makes wars cease, he says. But you notice here when he talks about it, he breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. This isn't some gentle persuasion this isn't a golden age that's brought about through human achievement this isn't like a john lennon's song imagine where we just wish that there were no wars this isn't a thing where we're all going to hold hands together and sing kumbaya this is the sovereign lord forcing everyone to bow down and to acknowledge that he is the one in control the world is going to be judged by him. And then he says, be still 
and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What's the psalmist saying? We often interpret that be still as a word of comfort. We have a a hymn like that, be still and know that I'm God, and it's one of those little soft, gentle hymns that we sing. This is a word of comfort, but it's not be still, relax in that sense that we often take it. This is a command of God, and when he says be still, what he's saying is be quiet, leave off. I am the Lord. I will be exalted, not any power in this world. This is an authoritative statement that he makes here. And we need to trust in that promise, trust in his power, trust in him. But we have a big problem letting go of our problems and trusting God, remembering that he's the one in control. I wonder sometimes if, if we even know how to relax with everything that goes on in our world. When we look at natural disasters, when we look at international, national problems, when we look at our own personal problems, do we ever just sit back and relax and remember that God is the one in control of things? When's the last time you just took a walk in the evening and enjoyed the sunset, the natural beauty of the world? When's the last time you just sat back in your easy chair, I don't know, maybe in a hot bath, if that's your thing, and just read a a chapter of a book uninterrupted? When's the last time you just took a day to get away from it all? Maybe you you took off your watch so you wouldn't be distracted by the time you, you turned off the phone, you didn't check your email. You tried to remain at peace rather than stressed. You see, all these things are are gifts from God. God intends for us to enjoy the life, the abundant life that he's given to us in Christ. But in contrast to that, someone said that, that three words can summarize the way most people live their lives. Hurrying, worrying, and scurrying. Now, that's the way that most of us live. But that's not the way God intended us to live. And ultimately, when we live like that, what it signals is that we're relying on ourselves. We're trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in him. We think that we're in control of everything, and we forget that he's actually the one who's in control of everything. And we fail then to to appreciate all of these small gifts, these little wonders that he's given to us to enrich our lives, to make life itself worth living. This refrain is repeated twice in this psalm, and we need to remember it. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's ultimately the promise of Emmanuel, isn't it? The promise that Isaiah makes. His name will be called Emmanuel. That is God with us. In Christ, we have God available to us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's close this morning by pointing out three great truths that we can draw briefly from this psalm. First of all, God is always near. God is always available to us. You may be put on hold 
on the phone when you try to call in to some company through an automated system. You may have to wait at a red light. It might take you 30 minutes right now to get to Dayton as much as traffic is backed up on Highway 90. We might have to wait in line if we go make a deposit at the bank. We might have to wait in line at Walmart because they've got 50 lanes and only two of them open. But God will never make us wait. He's always available. He's always there to hear us. He's always there to speak to us. We should talk to him through our prayers. Some of our problems may be trivial. Some of them may be deep and important, but he wants to hear about all of them. And we need to listen when he speaks to us through his word. He's spoken here. It's available to us. It's this source of comfort and strength and encouragement if we'll avail ourselves of it. Secondly, we need to remember that God's power is greater than any power in this world, greater than winds or storms or earthquakes or volcanoes or hurricanes or floods, greater than any sort of tension, whether that's foreign or domestic. There is no greater power And God's power is sufficient to give us the victory over anything that may come our way. And then third and finally, God's help is effective even when we can't help ourselves. Especially when we can't help ourselves. In fact, we need to realize that we need to be turning to God for help instead of trusting ourselves and using Him as this sort of court of last resort. We need to trust in him and try to live in his will at all times. Have you felt weak lately? Are there just too many of those uh, life-changing units there in your life? Lean on God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. If you're here this morning without Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please realize that he wants you to come to him. He wants you to find him. He wants to be that source of strength and power in your life. And so I'd urge you not to leave today without placing your trust in him, turning to God in repentance and being buried in the waters of baptism where your sins will be washed away and you'll be added to his people. And you can have that that promise of the comfort that comes with being part of God's people. You can say, we will not fear, we will not be moved. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a Christian already, but in the midst of all the trials of life, you've been trusting in yourself You've been trying to go alone rather than trusting in him. If that's the case, you need to make changes today. And if you need to make them in a public way, whatever your need may be, it's the Lord's invitation now while we stand and while we sing.